Last week as we wrapped up Hebrews chapter 7, we saw Jesus as our perfect and permanent Savior. This week, in the first seven verses of chapter 8, we're going to see Jesus as our exalted Lord. And he's sitting, sitting right now on the throne. But one of the main points, the main focuses of this passage is that Jesus is our exalted Lord, that he is our reigning king priest. And one of, uh, one of my favorite um, books of all time in regards to the cross of Christ um, is a uh, book by John Stott. If you don't know who John Stott is, he's a, a rare combination of evangelist and um, administrator, pastor, uh, author, Bible teacher. Uh, he is British, actually. Um, and he, uh, he, the, the title of the book is called The Cross of Christ. It's super thick. Um, so if you are looking for something to dive into that is uh, going to take you a while to read. He's a brilliant man. Um, and he wrote this about Jesus. He said, the resurrection and the ascension were a decisive demonstration of divine power. For if there were two powers which man cannot control, but which hold him in bondage, they are death and evil. Man is mortal. He cannot avoid death. Man is fallen. He cannot overcome evil. But God in Christ has conquered both and therefore can rescue us from both. And that's kind of what we saw last week, right? We have this predicament that we're in. Um, we're going to die. But we're all so unrighteous, right? And so we're, we're all facing with death. We're all faced with unholiness, unrighteousness. And, but Jesus conquered both of those. Jesus rescues us from those. And so um, it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, truth that we were able to, to explore last week. And this week, we're going to see that Jesus is a superior priest, much superior than any other priest that came before him. We're going to see why. Um, in, in chapters 8 and 9 the, uh, of Hebrews, the author really compares Jesus' priestly actions with all of the former priests, specifically when it comes to the Day of Atonement. We're going to talk about that as we dive into this passage. But let's pray, and then we'll read the whole passage together, and then we're going to walk through it verse by verse. Father, we uh, come before you right now. Lord, humbled, because um, apart from you, apart from your spirit, we will not understand anything that we read tonight, anything that we hear tonight. And so we need you, Holy Spirit, to teach us. We need you to expose the, the falsehood, the lies that we have been believing. Lord, we need you to, to, to sanctify us by your truth. That is what you prayed, Jesus, in your high priestly prayer, that, that you would, your disciples would be sanctified in the truth. And you said that your word, oh God, is truth. And so tonight, we pray that you would make us more like you. Convict us of sin. Expose in our hearts where we have not submitted to your lordship. And realize where you are, your current position, and what you're currently doing for us. And what you've already done. We praise you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 8, if you're not already there, let's read it together. Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 1. This is God's word. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. Wouldn't you wish every pastor would say that? Right? This is awesome. The point is what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. 
For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So from the very first verse, we see what the, the, the preacher of Hebrews has been leading up to. Right? The, 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 the first seven chapters have, have been making a point, hey, Jesus is better, Jesus is superior, and he says right here, very plain, this is the point. You have such a high priest who is superior. You have such a high priest who is exalted. Unlike any other high priest before, nobody has been like him, and he mediates a better covenant. It's a new covenant. It's a better covenant. And so we should say thank you to the author of this letter because he's being very obvious and very clear. This is the point. We want you to see this, right? And so he's comparing the Son of God to all of the former priests when it comes to the Day of Atonement and saying, this is, this is new. This is different. This is better. In the first two verses of this, that if you wanted to outline these seven verses, you could say the first two verses, we're talking about the new ministry. And, and then verses three through five, we're talking about the old ministry. And verses six through seven are talking about uh, Jesus mediating a new and better covenant. And so the reason we need a, a priest in the first place is because we need to offer sacrifices for our sins. We need to also uh, pray. We, like we needed a priest to intercede for us, to represent us before God. And so to build off of chapter 7, one of the main functions of the priest was to speak to God on behalf of the people. So we know that prayer is a distinctly priestly action, as we saw in chapter 7, verse 25, that Jesus doesn't stop praying. He doesn't stop interceding for us perfectly forever, which is amazing, right? And this, he has unlimited capacity to minister as a priest because of his indestructible life. Because one thing I know, like as I was thinking about this last week, this week, one thing that I can guarantee you with confidence is that you don't have a perfect pastor. I got no amens. You don't have a perfect pastor, right? Um, I'm sure that I've already disappointed you or I will disappoint you in the, in the future. I will let you down. Right? I know I'm not perfect. If you know me, you know I'm not perfect. You know that every other elder at this church is not perfect. No amens. Okay, we got one. That's good. <laughs> right? Like, all six elders at this church, no, not one of us is perfect. And so we will let you down. But Jesus will never let you down. Jesus will never, you'll never be disappointed by him. Right? He is a perfect pastor. In this, in this passage, in verse 2, it says he's a minister who ministers in the holy places. He is a perfect pastor. He's a perfect minister, right? He ministers perfectly, better than any other pastor, which is really encouraging. It's super awesome. So us human pastors, right, we're, we are capable of only a few things. Jesus has unlimited capacity, right? And, and, and so we, even, even pastors, even churches with multiple pastors, they can't meet all the needs of the congregation. Jesus never fails to meet all your needs. This is amazing, you can, you can always reach him. He's always there if you need to talk to him. 
right? His role is to intercede, and that's what he does perfectly. Our role is to approach his throne with confidence, as we've already seen in this letter, right? I was, I was thinking about this week, like, whenever you've seen children who have a loving father, they don't approach that father with, like, trepidation or fear, right? Whenever you've seen children who have a loving father, they run up to that father with boldness, with confidence, and they ask bold things, right? And they, and they jump into his arms because they know that he's going to receive them gladly, right? How much more should we run to the Lord with boldness, with confidence, right? We don't have to be timid when we come before him. We get to pray with confidence and boldness, right? We don't have to go through like pomp and circumstance. You don't have to get dressed up to come before Jesus. That's so beautiful. It's really encouraging. And because of Jesus, we've already talked about this a little bit, but we have peace with God because of Jesus. We have peace within because of Jesus. We have peace with men because of Jesus and only because of Jesus. And so we can pray confidently to the Father because we have a perfect pastor who's always interceding for us. And he is a perfect, not only a perfect pastor, he's a perfect king. He's a perfect king priest. And, and it's a very interesting phrase. You know, all of chapter 7 was about Melchizedek being the king priest, the king of, king of peace, the king of righteousness, this king priest, right? Jesus is the ultimate king priest. Why would we focus on Jesus being a king priest? Well, verses 1 and 2 of our passage tonight talk about his ministry. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. It's very important for us to understand, if you look at this first verse, that word seated. Because the original audience, when they first read this or when they first heard this, they would have been absolutely shocked to hear that this was a high priest who was sitting down. Because priests never sat down. And there was no seats in the tabernacle. If you look at any depiction of the tabernacle, any drawing of the tabernacle, any description of the tabernacle, you won't find a seat. There is no chair because the priests never sat down because their work was never finished. Their work was never done. They couldn't sit down. There's actually only one seat in the tabernacle. It's the mercy seat. That's where the Lord himself was. That's the presence of God right there. So there was no chair for the priests to sit down because their work was never finished. So for the author to say Jesus is currently seated is absolutely shocking because he's saying his work of atonement is done. It's finished. It's complete. Jesus pulled up a chair. He sat down. He has taken a seat, right? That's his position currently. And it's the posture of a king, Right? Does a king stand up when you walk in? No, he sit, he's sitting down. Right? The, the king is sitting on his throne. If you want a, another depiction of Jesus, what he's currently doing, sitting, all you have to do is go read Ephesians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul gives this beautiful picture of the Lord. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, it's going to be on the screen for you. We would know that God, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us uh, to, who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. This is what he's currently doing. 
This was never true of any other priest who came before him. He alone is the king priest. He alone can sit down, right? Nobody else wrote anything like this about him. In Philippians 2, it says that God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every other name so that every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And what is it, where is he currently at? He's not only sitting down, but it says he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. So, so this is interesting because he didn't say left. And if you read through all of the Bible, there's a massive emphasis on God's right hand. That he is, it's not short, he's, he's mighty to save, right? That, that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore, right? And, and in the old days, if you were, anybody was seated to the right of a king, then they were in a position of authority. That they, they were in a position that was of honor, a position of, of dignity. That, that there was no more powerful place that they could be. Right? When, when Joseph in Genesis was um, given a position of authority to rule and reign and govern, what did, they, what did they say? He was the right hand of Pharaoh. Right? So no one's higher, no one's greater, no one's more powerful than Jesus. He's reigning. He's ruling. It says all power, all dominion. So that brings to my mind a question for every single person in this room, every person who will listen to this ever, is he reigning in your life? Is he sitting on the throne of your life? Is he the Lord of your life? Yes, he's sovereign. He's sovereign Lord over all the cosmos, but is he Lord over your life? We love to claim him as Savior We love to say, Jesus saved me from my sins. Jesus saved me from God's wrath. Jesus saved me from hell. I got that get out of hell free card. He saved me. But oftentimes we don't want to say, he's my Lord. I bow down to him. I surrender to him. I listen to him. I obey him. I read his word and I submit to him. I live my life in alignment in accordance to his will and his ways. Is he reigning in your life? Is he ruling in your life? Does he call the shots in your life? Or do you rule? Do you reign? Are you the ultimate authority in your life? Or are you surrendering to his authority as Lord? Practically speaking, how does that, the fact, that, that Ephesians passage, how does, how does the fact that all rule is his, how does that change your life? How does the fact that all authority is his, how does that change your life? How does the fact that all dominion is in his hands, how does that change your life? How does that truth influence you day by day, moment by moment? In speaking of Jesus' incarnation and ascension back to the Father, Philip Hughes said this, And as I read this quote, I want you to keep in mind the fact that he's talking about when Jesus left heaven, came to earth, lived the perfect life, died on the cross, buried, rose from the grave, and then returned back to heaven. Keep that in mind. It says, and I quote, he left as the son of God. He returned both as son of God and also by reason of the incarnation, son of man. He left as Lord. 
He returned both as Lord and also as a minister on behalf of us in the presence of the Father. He left as king. He returned both as king and also as a high priest and intercessor for those whom he's not ashamed to call his brothers. He left as sovereign. He returned also as savior. No, nobody else can say this is true of them. Only Jesus. He is our savior, Lord. He's the savior. He's the Lord. He's the king. He's the priest. He's a perfect pastor. That's who Jesus is. Yes, his atoning work is done, but his intercessory work is ongoing, right? This is good news for us. Look at verses 3 through 5. We're going to look at the old ministry really, really quick. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So in the old ministry, priests had to continually offer sacrifices. You remember in chapter 7, verse 27, that they continually offered sacrifices, but Jesus offered up himself. So Jesus is the real deal, right? He offered up not part of himself, not a little bit of himself, but his whole self. Not a copy or a shadow, but the reality. Now, we all have seen shadows, right? Shadows have no substance. You can't touch a shadow. I couldn't, like, not think of Peter Pan when I was, like, thinking about the shadow, you know? You can't grab. You can't grab the shadow, right? Uh, but but they, they dimly represent the reality of the real thing, right? Moses was given plans, you can read about those in Exodus 25 and 26. He was given plans. He was given instructions to replicate the reality of the temple, of the tabernacle that's in heaven on the earth, right? And Moses was just following the instructions that God gave him. Jesus was the author of the instructions. The temporary tent was just a pointer to the placeholder of the real thing. Jesus is the real thing, right? Jesus being the author of the instructions, he shows up. The creator entered into his creation, right? So what's more real, the author of a story or the person who, oh, I'm sorry, what's more real, the author of the story or the story the the author wrote? It's the author, right? I mean, if you would say, hey, what's more real, um, the land of Narnia or C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis, right? The, the shadow lands are not what the substance is. It's the author who is real, that you can touch and see, that people touched and saw and heard, right? Like, like when, when Doubting Thomas said, I won't believe that he rose from the grave. I don't believe any of you. I don't believe any of you women, and I don't believe any of you, you disciples, any of you of my brothers that I've been walking around with for three years, I don't believe any of you, unless I can touch his hands, unless I can, can put my hand inside of the, the scar that the spear hit on the side where, where the Roman soldier pierced him when he was on the cross. I won't believe unless I see him and unless I can touch his scars. And Jesus says, boop. And he's like, hey, Thomas, you want to put your hand here? Put your hand here. What does Thomas say? He, he didn't say, ah, ah, thank you. No, he falls down on his face. And he says, what? My Savior. Nope. 
my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Because it was substance before him. Resurrected Jesus substance. This is not just a vision, not a hallucination, but resurrection Jesus substance. And this is why the author of Hebrews says that Jesus ministered in the true tent, the true tabernacle of the heavenlies. This is the real deal. The real mercy seat in the presence of God, not a shadow. No man set this up. No man could make this. This is who Jesus is. This is where he is. And we've mentioned the day of atonement a few times, and, and that's because it was the single most important day of the entire year. Leviticus 16.34 says atonement must be made once a year for all the sins of Israel. And Jesus made this atonement once and for all. Jesus made the ultimate atonement. Here at Red Oak, we believe in penal substitution. That's a really big theological word. Right, But there's going to be an image on the screen behind you. Write it down, look it up, go home, and watch this. Right, This documentary, The American Gospel, Christ Crucified, is an incredible resource. It's a wonderful documentary. It, it covers a lot of controversial theological issues, one of them being the atonement. It's super deep. You'll have to pause it a lot. Take some notes. But... Sit down, get, get, get together with other people. Like, watch it. Take, it. It's long, so take some time to watch it. But, like, think about it. As you're watching it, this is not just like a, a little show that you would just sit down and watch. It's an incredible resource, and I want you to watch it because you will learn false views of the atonement, and you will learn correct views of the atonement, right? The truth is, that God's perfect justice demands some form of payment for our sin. Somebody's got to pay. Sin creates a debt, and we must pay it. Or, like we learned last week, we say, thank you, Jesus. We submit to you for, for paying it in our place, for taking my place. Jesus being our substitute. There's going to be some passages up on the screen that you can write down just as references. If you wanted to just... This is, this is the atonement. Jesus in your place. Substitution. We read one of them as our time of corporate passage reading. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the substitution right there. That's what we believe. William Lane says this, his unique offering of himself put an end to the whole Levitical system of sacrifices because he secured complete atonement. It wasn't half atonement. It wasn't a little bit. It was complete and full, something that all the former priests could not accomplish with all of their continual offerings. And so because Jesus' ministry is better, let's look at the last two verses. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So by his perfect life and substitutionary death, Jesus inaugurated a new and better covenant promised by God in Jeremiah 31. Now next week, Spencer's going to cover the rest of this chapter, and he's going to walk through Jeremiah 31, because the author of Hebrews quotes it for the rest of the chapter, right? But the point of our first two 
first seven verses that we want to talk about tonight is that Jesus' ministry is better. His covenant is better. That he's the exalted Lord. He's the king priest. He's our perfect pastor. And I couldn't think of a better way to, like, I'm a visual person to, like, think about this or look at this. And so I thought about a chart about comparing all of the former priests with Jesus as priest to see what's the comparison look like. Now, you might not be able to read it because, um, yeah, it's small or blurry. But uh, listen to this. Former priests were many in number. Jesus was one. Former priests died and stayed dead. Jesus died and resurrected to never die again. Former priests were temporary. Jesus is permanent. Former priests were unable to save. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. Former priests were unfit. Jesus is perfectly suited for office. Former priests were unholy. Jesus is holy. Former priests were guilty. Jesus is innocent. Former priests were stained by sin. Jesus is unstained. Former priests were needy. Jesus has no need. Former priests offered daily sacrifices. Jesus offered himself once and for all. Former priests offered imperfect sacrifices. Jesus offered perfect sacrifice. Former priests' priesthood was based on the law. Jesus' priesthood was based on the word of God's sworn oath. Former priests were appointed by the law. Jesus was appointed as the son of God. Former priests had had destructible lives. Jesus has an indestructible life. Former priests were weak. Jesus is strong. Former priests offered blood of animals as sacrifices. Jesus offered the blood of his unblemished self as the son of man, son of God. Former priests offered, their offerings were not salvific. Jesus' offering made salvation complete and secure. Former priests had fault in and of themselves. Jesus, faultless. Former priests were not effective. Jesus, fully effective. Former priests had one person access once a year to the Holy of Holies in a temporary tabernacle. Jesus provides access at any time, any place in a real heavenly tabernacle. Former priests continually worked. They never stopped. Jesus is seated because his atoning work is done. Former priests were shadows. Jesus is reality. Former priests were men. Jesus is the God-man. Former priests held earthly positions. Jesus holds a heavenly position. Former priests humbled. Jesus exalted. There is no comparison. Adrian Cognac says this, if Christ is the one and only priest in history who sacrificed himself, then there simply is no way in which the priest can meaningfully be compared to him. He was not merely greater, but much greater than they. He was a priest on a different level, of a different order. And this is why it really means for him to be of the order of Melchizedek, incomparable to anyone else. So his ministry is better. It's superior. His covenant is better. It's new. It's far better than the old. And don't miss in verse 6 where it says that he still mediates. He still mediates because you and I need a mediator between holy God and us, because we are not holy. We don't live every day perfectly. We don't love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and strength every day like we should. So 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Our king priest is Savior and Lord. He saves, he sanctifies, he mediates still. That's what he's done, that's who he is, and that's what he is currently doing. Al Mohler said this, Christ is not done mediating for his people. While Christ's atoning work is finished, his advocating work is not. This mediatory work is the primary occupation of Christ in heaven. As Jesus sits at his Father's right hand, he intercedes for us. He's not lazy. He's not a lazy king. He's not doing nothing. 
Right? At the end of the day, when you get home from work, don't you just love to just veg out, just sit down, just take a seat because your work is done for the day and do nothing? Jesus doesn't do nothing. He's always working. He already worked, and he's continuing to work. He doesn't sit there lazy. He's not a lazy king. How, how encouraging is this for followers of Jesus? To know he's always praying. He's always mediating. He never stops working on our behalf. No matter what you faced, no matter what you're currently facing or what you will face, he's always there interceding for you. He never stops mediating. Now, I know that earlier we said that praying is a, a, a priestly action. But remember a few weeks ago we said that we are now considered to be priests, a holy priesthood, that we have been raised up from where we were. Right? And so now we have the ability to pray, not only for ourselves, but to intercede for others. We can pray for other people, which is a very priestly action. Right? But how, how many times, how many, if, if there's anything more convicting in the Christian life, is when somebody says, hey, how's your prayer life? Right? Like, if we, we all know we should pray more. We don't pray as much as we should. Right? And we always feel guilty whenever somebody asks us, like, how's your prayer life? Have you ever felt insufficient in your prayer life? Or you feel like, I don't really know if my prayers are reaching the ceiling, much less the ears of a sovereign king. Well, me too. Every time that I walk into my office, I love to start the day with a prayer and end the day before I leave the office with a prayer. And I like to read a, a book of prayer. It's called The Valley of Vision. I use a little book as a catalyst for the prayer before I start my work for the day. And this week, um, when I went into the office one day, I, was, I started to read, and one of these prayers just brought me to my knees. I was just absolutely broken as I read this. And part of it says this, in, and see if you can relate to this. In my Christian walk, I am still in rags. My best prayers are stained with sin. My penitential tears are so much impurity. My confessions of wrong are so many aggravations of sin. My receiving the Spirit is tinctured with selfishness. I need to repent of my repentance. Wow. Like, have you ever thought about that before? I mean, that's brutal honesty. I, I even sin in my repenting. I don't, I don't always fully, genuinely, sincerely repent before the Lord. I don't always fully, genuinely confess and lay myself bare before the Lord, acting like he can't see anything, like everything already. This is brutal honesty. I need to repent of my repentance. What's absolutely astonishing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that his new covenant is what it means for us to trust in him and to know that we have been elevated from where we were and we're not where we were anymore and that we're actually sitting with him. And this is weird. It's very hard for us to comprehend, but it's the Bible, so I'm going to read it. This is Ephesians chapter 2. This is the gospel, and this is you if you're in Christ. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And what did he do? He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What? We are currently seated with Christ in the heavenly places? Like in Christ Jesus, this is a reality for me and for you. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you trusted Jesus, like we're not dead in our sin anymore. We're not defined by our sin anymore. We're not, we're not condemned because we're guilty anymore. We're not, we don't have to be enslaved to our sin anymore. We don't have to live our lives like we're in prison anymore. We've been set free and brought up out of a pit because of his sovereign grace and mighty power. He saved us and gave us new life, a new position in Christ, a new creation in Christ, with Christ by God's grace, in his new covenant, we share in Jesus' victorious resurrection. We share in his glorious ascension. We share in his peaceful reign. This is shocking for believers. This is unbelievable. We sit in the heavenly places. We sit in these unseen reality, this spiritual reality in Christ, with Christ. This is what the Bible says. Jesus did all of this, and he still prays for us. He never ceases to mediate and intercede for us because he knows we can't do it perfectly, yet he calls us to do it anyway. Ephesians ends like this in chapter 6. Pray at all times in the Spirit, saints. Pray at all times with all prayer and all supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. That's what we're called to as believers, to always pray Always pray in the Spirit. Always be in alignment with the Spirit in our praying. And pray for everybody all the time, no matter what you're doing. I know I don't do that perfectly. I'm guessing you don't either. We, we don't do this perfectly. We're super inconsistent when we pray. We need help even in our praying, right? And Jesus cleans up our prayers. That's one of his roles right now. He cleans up our prayers before they even get to the Father. He mediates for us. He intercedes for us. Right? The, the Spirit is currently interceding for us when we don't know how to pray. So not only is the Spirit interceding for us, as Romans 8 says, but Jesus is also mediating and interceding for us. Our King Priest never ceases to do this. To receive our prayers and present them to the Father. So let's be a people who praise Jesus as Savior and petition Him as Lord. Let's be a people who worship Jesus as rescuer and obey him as Lord. Let's be a people who adore Jesus as our redeemer and bow to him as our Lord. If you'll close your eyes and bow your heads. I'm going to close the sermon by reading the rest of that prayer that I read earlier this week. And then we're going to pray together at the end. O oh God of grace, I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. I have no robe to bring to cover my sins, no loom to weave my own righteousness. 
I am always standing clothed in filthy garments, and by grace am always receiving change of raiment. For you always justify the ungodly. I am always going into the far country, always returning home as a prodigal, always saying, Father, forgive me, and you are always bringing forth the best robe. Every morning, let me wear it. Every evening, return in it. Go out to the day's work in it. Be married in it. Be wound in death in it. Stand before the great white throne in it and enter heaven in it, shining as the sun. Grant me never to lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness, the exceeding wonder of grace.